Indonesia, a land of mystery. From the thick jungles of Sumatra to the crystal clear waters of Lombok. Hi, I'm Kyle, and let me take you on a journey across this wonderful land to meet the people who make the hospitality industry in Indonesia world class. Whether you're a veteran in hospitality, a seasoned investor, or someone looking for a sea change in life, this podcast covers everything that you need to know to inspire your next move in Indonesia. Today we have a very special guest. Uh, it is Ben Cass, who is the President Director for Living Well Seniors Communities and the founder of the association Senior Living Indonesia. Ben, thanks for joining us. Most welcome, Carl. Thank you. You've, um, you've just driven with your family from Java, where you live, to, uh, to Bali to spend a couple of months. Uh, tell me something that makes you laugh when you think about this trip. So we, we didn't really know what to expect. So, I mean, we were stuck in lockdown, uh, well, on and off lockdown. Um, it wasn't quite as consistent as what it was in Australia. So um, we were stuck in Jakarta. The kids were at home every day. You know, I was doing my meetings via Zoom. My wife was doing her meetings via Zoom. And then there was that moment where we just thought, well, just, you know, screw this. Why are we here? Uh, we can just <laughs> yeah. sort of get up and leave subject to us all not having COVID and getting clean uh, blood tests. So we, I remember, you know, we're sitting around the kitchen table and I said to my wife, well, well how about we go? Let's do Bali for a month. Um, you know, in terms of pricing, probably not a better time to be in, in Bali. Um, yeah. And we got up and left. Um, what, what struck me was just the, you know, all the new tolls which have been built over the last couple of years. Um, so, I mean, that's been a real, I guess, hallmark of President Jokowi. Um, Three, four years ago, it just wouldn't have been possible driving. Um, but um, we did it in about 15 hours all up, all brand new tolls up until there's, you know, there's a final stretch, which is a you know, pain in the ass. But up until then, it was fantastic. But, I mean, what's extraordinary is that, um, you know, you're on this brand new modern toll, you're, you're flying along, the facilities are as good as, as anywhere else in any Western country, but then you're, you're passing through these villages, which... And this is, I guess, forever the story of Indonesia, this total dichotomy between what we're, we're doing, so flying down this tollway and, and in a, I think, in a comfortable car, and, and these villages which are living in a, in a very different world. Um, and that's yeah. true of, I mean, that's also true of Jakarta. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you walk down the street, as you know, Kyle, in Jakarta, you know, you're passing you know, 50, 60, 70-storey glistening uh, skyscra- skyscrapers, which are overlooking kampongs, um, you watch valet parking guys, you know, earning a couple of hundred bucks per month parking people's Rolls Royces. Um, but it all seems to work um, in this very weird place. Um, so, yeah, so it was a great trip, uh, very enjoyable. How are the kids? Well, yeah, so I, you mean, having three children, uh, 14, 9 and, and 2, uh, you mean, uh, talk about roll of the dice, um, <laughs> their level of patience, uh, but they were great. Um, there was no issues at all. Um, and it was yeah. genuinely stunning. Like, um, you know, the only thing I'd say is obviously after 15 hours, everything gets a little bit tedious, but, but it was genuinely stunning as you're cutting through that countryside in Java. It's, it's, it is extraordinary. Um, yeah. and then when we took the ferry over, um, again, what amazed me was just how easy it all was. You make the booking via an application online, you pay at your local kind of 7-Eleven or you pay online via your app. Uh, you, you rock up, uh, you drive straight through, you show them the blood test results, you board the, the ferry, uh, and 45 minutes you're in Bali. Um, That's incredible. So it was just 
so that's what surprised me, Jimmy, because often, as you know, Kyle, I mean, things here can be so complicated, uh, unnecessarily so, uh, but then other times things are just so seamless. And, and, that, and this trip, when I thought everything could go wrong, um, has worked out a total dream. We've split this podcast into four segments. Um, part one's about expat living and, and your experiences. Part two's on starting a business in Indonesia. Part three is on building in Indonesia. And obviously, you've got a, a lot of experience in, in, in development. And part four is you know, running a premium business. So um, kicking off with you know expat living, you, you noted just now that um, Kuda Lombok is dead, but Changu is quite busy. Now, why do you think that is? So there's a substantial expat community already living in Chenggu. So, yeah, like I said, you I mean, one of the things which struck me when, when we left was we didn't really know what to expect when we got here. I mean, we, you know, I was reading the Australian press saying, I mean, Bali's dead, Bali's dead, you I mean, the end of Bali, blah, blah, blah. And that's true to a degree. You know, I mean, Kuta is a ghost town. And in fact, parts of actually Kuta are actually physically uh, barricaded where you can't enter um, just for... I guess for because there's simply no 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 traffic to justify having to have security etc. So, um, but when you get back to Seminyak, there's a life to it. Uh, restaurants and cafes are open, much less than what they would have been used to a year ago, but still open. Um, and then Chengdu, as you said, busy, like remarkably so. So I think what you're getting is you're getting a bit of a realignment. So a you've got that expat community which was already living in Chengdu. I think the second thing which is happening is uh, a market in Bali, which is probably ironically growing up a little bit, realizing that it can't simply rely on Western tourists. Um, and like we've talked about before, you I mean if you're running Finns Beach Club or if you're selling trinkets in Kuta, do you have a problem over the next couple of years? Absolutely. Um, but if you realign your business towards this enormous domestic market of 275 million people, um, your business can be sustainable. Um, so what we're seeing, and we saw it on the drive on the way down, all the number plates you see around Bali at the moment, all number plates from uh, the big cities like Jakarta, from Surabaya, from Semarang, um, and just filled with Indonesian families. So maybe, I mean, that's, that's probably cold comfort to a lot of Balinese families, uh, but for others who are realigning their business, uh, it's probably good a good example that, um, this place can continue to survive, but relying on the domestic market. I was speaking to Pak Jisma Batmika, and he's um, the Director for Tourism Industry and Institutions for the Borobudur Tourism Authority. And he was interestingly saying as his tips um, for businesses starting in Indonesia was that to start off by targeting the domestic market. But I think it's the language barrier and the knowledge of, I guess, a Western culture that we straight away gravitate towards the international market. So sure. I think you raise a really good point there. I think we've all done it to a degree. Um, when we talk about, I think we, we often make the mistake of lumping Asia all in together. Uh, you know, I've had I have friends and colleagues who are working in Hong Kong and Singapore and then make that leap, uh, make that assumption, therefore, that Indonesia will be the same. And yet, as you said, language is the biggest barrier. Um, uh, less so, can I suggest, in Bali than in, in Jakarta. Um, I mean, in, in I Jakarta, you would need to have a working proficiency of, of Bahasa Indonesian day to day. Uh, I guess if you're in the F&B industry, less so in uh, Bali. But again, just just 
trying to assimilate, just trying to integrate, just trying to gain some level of trust does require communication in, in someone's own local language. Um, mm. And that's, but realigning to that domestic market is where I think businesses will head. Um, and our, you know, I mean, our own business has always been premised on the domestic market. Um, yeah. There are people who have entered this market, I think, with kind of lofty ideas about uh, appealing to the overseas seniors market. Um, you know, they look at, you know, beautiful places where I am right now and they go, well, wouldn't that be appealing to every 70-year-old from, from Australia? And we've never really bought into that. Uh, we've, our focus has only ever been on a, on a domestic market because families like to stay close to other families. Um, and it's a huge untapped market. As I said, you know, 250 yeah. million people. That's, that's always been our starting, our starting point. Can you describe what your first memory of, um, of Indonesia was, you know, the sights, the smells, you know, put listeners in your shoes that, that first time that you were in Indonesia? Yeah, I checked into a hotel. Um, some, some listeners may be aware of the, the, the park, I think the park hotel in, um, Jakarta Selatan. And I, I mean, I opened up the blinds in the morning. And I was staring at the cemetery. I had no idea where I was. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's quite, yeah. So next to next to more, and it's just a it's just a massive cemetery. And I, you know, I checked in at yeah, eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. Um, so that so that was a bit of a fright. Um, and then the next <laughs> thing was, you know, I mean, I was woken to the sound, and and this is the, you know, I mean, I guess as I've changed, um, you know, I, I would have woken up probably you know four four thirty to the sound of the of the local masjid, the local mosque. Um, which at the time was just, you know, scared me knowing. Um, and now it's actually a sound I kind of miss. It's a sound which you get used to. Um, yeah. and that, and that's, you know, uh, that's something which I'm not familiar with here in Bali, but I guess where, you know, in, in Lombok, it's probably a sound you hear pretty routinely. So you do get used to yeah. it. And, and dare I say it, you kind of miss it if you haven't heard it for a while. Um, so yeah, waking up to the sound of the call to prayer. Uh, opening up my blinds to see a cemetery, thinking, God, where am I? And then heading down to uh, the all you can eat buffet breakfast when the staff opened up the doors, not being able to see beyond, you know, 10, 15 metres because the whole place was filled with smoke as guys were sitting there, you know, chain smoking. That's changed a little bit. I mean, uh, the smoking thing changed a little bit. Um, so now, you know, smoking indoors isn't quite the thing that it used to be years ago. I, I do always also yeah. remember, you know, when you just walk around the street in Jakarta, it's always amazing. You know, you, it is that whole dichotomy. You know, you've got, you know, these glistening skyscrapers. Um, you've got, uh, you know, traffic being blocked by guys, you know, pushing along the sate, ca uh, sate carts. Cuts. Um, yeah. you know, you've got, you know, sort of a buildup of, you know, luxury vehicles. Um, as they're waiting to overtake, you know, a guy pushing a, uh, a waste disposal, you know, little truck. I mean, they're, they're the kind of contrasts. Um, and of course, forever you're watching where you step because, uh, it's not the most pedestrian friendly city. Um, yeah. But yeah. Those sights, those sounds. Um, I'll always remember that, that smell of sate. I mean, that, that's, oh, that, that smell. Oh, correct. That's, that's one thing I really miss is a good sate, which, and no one knows how to nail it here in Australia. That, you need an open air fire, which I don't think would pass many weeks back back in Melbourne or Perth, and that's forever what I'll I'll remember about the place. And I and as as I've gotten older and more used to living here, um, there are actually things I miss when I'm not in Indonesia. Now, what was your aha moment? You know that 
that you knew Indonesia would be where you'd be doing business? Look, I think it was a gradual thing. I, I made the mistake that I think uh, a lot of people make, uh, not realizing the level of time commitment. So, you know, a good friend of mine, Peter Craven, and I were having breakfast. I think it was at the um, Pullman Hotel in, in the main part of Jakarta. And I remember telling him, and he must have, in hindsight, thought I was a total idiot. Um, I remember him telling me, I remember me telling him rather that um, I reckon I could wrap up this deal for investment. Uh, uh, pick out contractors and be back in Melbourne in about six to eight weeks. And that was seven or eight years ago. Um, yeah. So I think I underestimated the amount of time it would require. And I made the mistake at the start of thinking that it's something which could be done uh, by commute, by coming and going between Jakarta and Melbourne. Um, and, I, and I learned that mistake pretty quickly. Um, so I don't think there was an aha moment as such. It was a it was yeah. a gradual awareness um, that to do business in Indonesia, particularly in Jakarta, um, in the, the kind of industry we're in, would require a full time commitment. It would require me physically living in in Jakarta. Yeah, that that's one thing I noticed when we were setting up as well is that it was really hard and really expensive to try and do it traveling between Australia and Indonesia. So, you know, for, for listeners who are embarking on a journey of investment um, in Indonesia, just, just take note, note of the fact that it, it does require you to, to be in Indonesia to do it right. Yeah, and it's not, it's not an absence of modern communications. Everyone here is using WhatsApp and emails and WhatsApp. It's just, it's just simply not done, though, day to day in the sense that to get a deal done still requires that face-to-face -face interaction. Um, so, I mean, I remember, you know, having what I thought would be a really successful trip in Jakarta. Um, I remember there's a friend of mine here who always made the point in his 20 odd years in Jakarta, he'd never had a bad meeting. And what he meant by that wasn't that all of his meetings had good outcomes. It was just that at the end of every meeting, everyone politely is smiling and shaking hands. And we as Westerners assume, therefore, that a deal has been done. Um, Indonesians have mm. politely listened to us. We have been politely berating them with our grand ideas for one hour. Um, and at the end of it, there's lots of nodding, lots of smiling and shaking of hands. Um, and we assume the deal's done. People agreed. Um, and we go home and we then send off those PDF contracts. And of course, we don't get a reply. Um, so it, it, yeah, it does require that face-to-face -face interaction. It does require that trust. And um, that trust is, I think, uh, primarily built through living here. What do you most love about you know, what you're doing now and the life you're living? I think because our day-to-day -day interaction is with elderly people. I mean, that's something which I, I personally find very satisfying. Um, and I mean, when we get feedback from children about the development of their parents, about how their parents' lives have been transformed when they became members of our seniors' clubhouses or when they, you know, uh, bought into our residential projects, there was that's very satisfying personally, and that's that's something which I didn't have in my work in in Melbourne. And having that interaction with staff uh, is has been extraordinary. I mean, they we have been extremely lucky to have the staff that we have. Maybe some of it has been trial and error, but uh, the staff have been fantastic from day one. Um, and I think it's a particularly difficult job. I mean, th this will be true for in, in anywhere around the world when you talk about aged care. But you can have all the kind of skills on paper, but ultimately it comes down to you know communication, touching, smiling. Uh, how someone interacts with that elderly people. We've been really lucky with that. So I think, yeah, that, that satisfaction we get from, from, from the members, 
seeing how happy they are and then the feedback we get from from children amazing mate absolutely amazing obviously you know you, you studied dementia care at um, University of Tasmania so you know it's not you, know, you don't it's it's clear that this isn't just a business for you like you've known that this is what you've wanted to do and to, to care for people from the get-go it's a very weird kind of setup here the kind of society norms here regarding elderly because access to because there is access to cheap labor that has ordinarily meant seniors are taken care of by Pumbuntu, by by sort of, you know, housekeepers by nannies that kind of thing but that just doesn't level bring that level of skill or expertise that you need. And it would be the, I guess, the equivalent at the other end of the spectrum of having uh, having a nanny come in in replacement for childcare or for kindergarten or for early learning schooling. Uh, it's not the same. People need that interaction with other people. People need to build those friendships and staff need to be skilled. So, but ordinarily, seniors would be taken care of at home and they would be looked after by by a nanny. So that's, that's what's changed here. Husbands and wives are, are dual-income families now. That's far more common than what it used to be. Mm. In the old days, I mean, the wife would often be at home, and now there are more women uh, enrolled in colleges here than, than men are. So there's been, this, there's been this shift over the last 10 or 20 years. We're pleased to be part of that. But in, as, as it relates to dementia care, yeah, this was something which was – Sad. It was just frankly sad. Um, just the lack of awareness. Uh, there was an association with uh, people who had dementia with people who were mentally ill because there just was that lack of awareness. Um, so that was something I personally was committed to. I think as a company, we've done a good job bringing awareness to this subject in Indonesia. But I've, I've loved going back to university. Um, you know, it's been 20 odd years since I was last there. Um, but that's been rewarding. And then being able to apply that day to day in my work. How do you how do you compare the, your life in Indonesia now to the life that you were living in Australia? I'm much hotter and sweatier than I am when I was back in Melbourne. Uh, <laughs> um, every day is a bit of an adventure here. Every day there's something totally new. I mean, I've been here for what, seven or eight years and I'm still learning something new every day. So there's never been that monotony that I think we all get stuck in, in lives back in Melbourne or Perth or wherever we are. Uh, I've never had that monotony. You know, there's never been that moment of that routine of, you know, getting up at six o'clock in the morning, having a shower and then thinking, oh God, you know, we're going to go through all this again. Every day has been different. Every day I think I've learned something a little bit more about this very strange place. And that's what's made it exciting. That's what's made it, you know, interesting day to day. And I think, you know, I remember a guy from uh, the Australian Embassy here talking about the orientation programs that when Australians get posted to Indonesia. They get sent to Canberra for a few weeks for these training programs about life in Jakarta. And he was on his way out and he said he wished he had the programs for leaving Indonesia, you know, getting back to that kind of monotony of life back in Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra or Brisbane, um, because that's the kind of, that's the bit which is probably more difficult uh, than, uh, than living here day to day. I agree. There's a there's a complexity, but then there's also the simplicity of life there, yes. which you can't compare to any other any other country in the world. Correct. Yeah, it, it's really hard to describe. How do you raise a family there? Like, what's changed for you uh, between raising the family here and and there? I think the the weird thing. I think particularly as as an Australian, the weird thing for me has been uh, domestic staff. Um, I mean, they 
I mean, our, our, our personal stuff are, are incredible. Um, but that, I think that was a little bit of a weird thing for me to get used to. Um, so, I mean, they are raised with nannies and drivers, uh, which quite obviously wasn't the, the upbringing which, which I had, or I think most 99% of Australians. So that, that's odd. Um, and now, I mean, now, you know, maybe I've become very, uh, uh, here, but, um, I mean, now, they're almost indispensable for us, but they are part of the family. Um, and that's also an, an aspect which I found uh, a little bit strange to get used to, uh, that there's not simply staff which come and go. They are part of your family. Um, yeah. Their problems often become your problems. Uh, but yeah. the value add... <laughs> so true. Yeah. But the value add to the family unit is is extraordinary. So, yeah, so they've had yeah. a very different upbringing. Uh, you know, they you know, get taken to school and, you know, by a driver. Um, I've been, I've been pleasantly surprised by the school. Um, you know, schools here, I guess, are, um, I guess have perhaps three different types. You know, you've got your embassy affiliated private schools. So in our case, you know, Australian International School, you've got British International School, you've got the Jakarta International School affiliated to the, to the, to the US embassy. And then you've got these, uh, next, Next rung down, but no less good schools, um, which are excellent private schools, uh, typically based on you know, a UK model, uh, you know, either the IB or you know, the Cambridge model of UK. They're very, very good. And then, you, you, then you've got your local government schools, which unfortunately just aren't up to par. Um, but the good news is there's enough choice here in the market for families based on their own financial circumstances to pick out something which uh, which matches uh, what they're after and what their financial capacity is. But we've been super happy with the school. Um, the only thing, I guess, which is a little bit different to what I was used to was the emphasis on physical education. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm hardly a proponent of, of PE now at my age of 43, but um, certainly when I was at school, I mean, I was used to doing, you know, PE twice a week and then, you know, uh, sport every Saturday. That doesn't really happen uh, as much here. Mm. You know, sport, and I think that's very much uh, that kind of Asian stereotype regarding sport being considered yeah. more of a hobby. Um, but I, I mean, I, I look back now at my age thinking, no, you I mean, there were some really good skills which I learned about, you know, being, you know, kicked in the mud when I was, you know, 11 or 12 years of age, which our kids don't have, um, mm. um, versus an emphasis on maths and science and et cetera. So that, that's in terms of schooling, that for me was, I guess, one of the eye openers. Um, yeah. But they have a lifestyle which is very different to what I was used to. As I said, you mean nannies yeah. and drivers and whatnot. Um, but the other thing which I've noticed, um, I mean, and, you know, that, that old cliche, you know, you know, you know takes a village. Um, I think that's true. I, I didn't know who my neighbours were other than, you know, a, in, in back in Melbourne, other than a polite, you know, hi, how are you kind of thing. Um, we know our neighbours here really well. Um, you know, I mean, the kids go out on the street and play. Um, uh, when there are problems, you know, whether it's, you know, the water is cut out or there's an issue with the electricity supply or whatever, People get together, um, and that's just something which I was never used to in Melbourne because, I, because it simply doesn't happen in Melbourne. Uh, but here, um, these communities really are very integrated, and it's 
never for a moment have we been worried about our kids playing outside our house uh, because we know they're being looked after by literally hundreds of other people. And that's something which is very satisfying, very rewarding, but very different to uh, growing up in Melbourne. I spent the first seven years growing up in India. It's yep. very much the same thing where you're playing in the street, but you've got all the grandmas sitting on the balcony watching over you. So there's Correct. there's no chance of, of, of anything really happening to you. Correct. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, as a parent, very satisfying to watch the kids play in that environment. Um, and as I said, back in Melbourne, yeah, I mean, other than, other than knowing neighbours by face, I certainly wouldn't know anyone beyond uh, one or two houses down. Whereas here, it's, it's very different. And, that, and that's, that's a very nice thing. What are some tips that you can share with listeners on integrating with society and, and immersing themselves in the culture there? I think we've touched on language. I, I mean, I think language is so important. Um, even when you are dealing with people who uh, can perhaps speak English perfectly well, you know, one of the things I note with my grandparents were, you know, they, my grandparents are from a you know, non-English non speaking background. And even though they learned English perfectly well, we all noticed that as they got older, more and more they would revert to their, to their, you know, language of birth. So there's, there's something quite intrinsic about language. And I think that's true in Indonesia. You know, in, in Jakarta, I guess a lot of the people which we deal with at a, at a directorship level have perfect English. You know, they've all been educated either in Australia or the United States. But there is something about communicating with someone in their birth language. So I think that's, I think that's number one. Number two, I think, particularly in the business community, and I'm going to make a distinction between perhaps Bali and, and say Jakarta, but people need to be aware that it's a very strata society, which is again, to something which we're not really familiar with, or perhaps we're not even comfortable, we're not comfortable with it in Australia. As Australians, it's something which we find kind of galling, this idea of these sort of strata levels in a community. But Indonesia is very much like that. And that's something like which- Like a caste system. Absolutely. I mean, I've used that word before. I've, I've described it as a, as a feudal system also, where yes, there are, you know, uh, lords and serfs. Uh, it is very much like that. And that's something which I think, you know, Australians may find kind of uh, a little bit hard to get their head around, but uh, that's how Indonesia is. And it's certainly not going to change in the, in the short to medium term. Um, so there are social standings based on families and of course, based on wealth. And as we, I guess, discussed yeah. earlier, you know, the idea of a guy who's earning a couple hundred dollars a month, um, who's parking the car of the Rolls Royce, you know, would just be unheard of, obviously, in Australia. That that level of gap, that's not to say there isn't poverty mm. in Australia. Uh, that's not to say that there isn't wealth inequality in Australia. But the level of, of that gap is obviously uh, much more stark here in Indonesia. But it works. There isn't that kind of social conflict. Uh, it does work. So that's something which I was struck by. I think the other aspect is that, again, I think this is a point specific to uh, Jakarta, Surabaya, is uh, the concentration of wealth and the relative size of the business community. It is a small business community. So whereas, I guess, in back in AU, you'll have a successful businessman who's focused on one area. So let's say they're a pioneer of the healthcare industry. That's what they do, healthcare. Uh, a property developer, that's what they solely do, property development. Here what happens with the very large uh, families is these totally disparate industries. 
A family has made you know, a fortune out of banking and now they're in property development. They're also in the textile industry. They're also in F&B because they own a number of hotels across Indonesia. Like they're fingers in many different pies. So that business community is much, much smaller. Despite the size of the place, you know, 270 odd million, uh, the business community here is relatively tiny and everyone knows everyone. One of the things, that was one of the things which also struck me that you either have wealth, and again, I'm going to perhaps stereotype a little bit, but you either have wealth, which has come through from the Suharto days, the last, uh, the last, uh, during, during the new order regime of, of Indonesia. So you'll have families who were associated to that president. Um, you'll have families who were involved in the army, who became very wealthy, uh, became very wealthy landowners. So you've either got those kind of families, or you have that uh, the Indo-Chinese community here, which is has been incredibly successful despite enormous difficulties. And then when you you know when you flick through the you know the top top 100 wealthiest list, it is time and time again dominated by by Indonesian Chinese who have flourished in Indonesia despite some incredibly difficult circumstances. So, as it relates to our business, and I think it's a mistake perhaps Australians make. Uh, the market isn't nearly as big as what people think it is. You know, yes, there are 270 million people, but that doesn't mean there are 270 million buyers of, of someone's product. So the, the products, the offering are actually much more niche, uh, with a much smaller market focus than what I originally thought eight or nine years ago because of that wealth discrepancy. On that note as well, it's almost like if it, over here in Australia, we say, you know, Perth is a small place. Because as soon as you do something wrong, everyone finds out about it. So, you know, getting it right, doing it eth ethically um, from the get-go is, is probably something that needs to be high on the, high on the agenda um, yeah. with that regard. And that goes to issues of permits, requests for payments, which are often associated with getting permits because the bureaucracy here is still often very difficult. One piece of advice that the past ambassador here offered, and I still think it's probably the best, the best advice I'd ever heard from from any of the any of the guys out of the embassy was, if you pay once, and he wasn't at all passing any moral judgment, uh, because you are often asked for uh, under the table payments here. But he did make the point: if you pay once, that's fine. No one's passing moral judgment, putting aside any of the potential criminality of it. But just to be aware, because it is such a small place, you will forever be hit up for cash in the future because you'll be known as that guy who paid originally. And that's absolutely stuck with me um, because, yes, everyone knows everyone. As I said, the business community here is incredibly small because of that strata caste-like system that we have here in Indonesia. And it was incredibly good advice. Um, and he yeah. sat across the table, wasn't passing any moral judgment at all. Uh, I think it's very easy for Australians to pass moral judgment on this place uh, without actually mm. living it or interacting it day to day. But yeah, he made yeah. the point. You pay once, people will know and people will hit you yeah. up in the future. Absolutely. I, I was really lucky. Um, I had a really good lawyer and... She just said, and and luckily I've never actually had this happen to me. But she said, if anyone ever asks you uh, for money, just call me. Yeah. And you know what? I haven't ever had to do that because, you know, 
we haven't experienced it. And that, I think, is past and parcel because the community where we've invested doesn't have a bar of it. Um, they're, they're quite quite Muslim. They, they live a certain way and, um, you know, they, they want to do the right thing, which which is great. Yeah, there, there, there is no, um, again, not being, uh, I don't want to sugarcoat the place, there is no shortage of requests for payments every now and again, but that doesn't mean business here has to be done through paying payments, not at all. Um, and there is a right way to do things. Um, and whether that's sticking to the regulations as frustrating and as contradictory as they and as they are, uh, there is a right way to do things. And then ultimately your you know, choice of partners, the communities you you choose to, to do business with. Um, and that does make life much, much easier. We'll shift into part two, which is starting a business in Indonesia now. Right, what was what was your approach to starting your business in Indonesia, and what strategic steps did you take? Uh, would you mind talking us through that process? I think we knew uh, very early on. Uh, we knew very early on the, the the need for partnerships here. I think that sounds very cliched, um, but it's absolutely true. Um, there are companies which are you know a schoolian times larger than than we are. Uh, with a schoolian times more capital than we can bring to the table who have failed um, because they haven't sought out or they haven't chosen the right partners. So it's not a case about how much money someone has or whether or not they can do something legally. It's more a case of, um, you know, I mean, there are vested interests here and partnerships uh, I think are just the, the go-to uh, for any business, irrespective of size. Um, I really think that's the starting point. And, that, and that's, we understood that from, from, from day one. So that's number one. The, the, the second part was we understood uh, that the market here we were chasing was, was a small market. Again, like I said earlier, that despite the, the large population, that doesn't mean 270 million people were looking for seniors living. Uh, and that certainly doesn't mean 270 million people could afford uh, could afford our, our product. So we're typically middle to middle upper class people in Jakarta live are in these gated communities. So gated communities are obviously uh, undertaken by township developers. Um, so there's probably only five or six recognizable township developers in Indonesia. So we always knew uh, that we had to settle up to, to one of those guys. Um, and, that, and that's what we, I think, did very well. Um, to give some context about township developers, these are guys who provide all the infrastructure. So they're not only property developers, but they're the ones laying out the roadworks, providing the electricity, providing the water, etc. Um, because they provide a standard uh, which is higher than what the local government can provide. So yeah, your middle, the middle upper demographic will typically be living in those kind of communities. So we did a really good job uh, shortlisting who those companies were. And I think we did a pretty good job of building those relationships, um, you know, to a point where what was, you know, PowerPoint presentations eight or nine years ago, essentially cold calling some of these people is now us attending weddings, funerals, uh, birthday parties and everything in between because they are genuinely friends. Um, I mean, I, I'm very proud to call them friends. They're people 
um, I speak to very candidly about stuff I get right, about stuff I get wrong. Um, and that trust, which has been developed, I think is what's got us to, to this point today. Incredible you say that. Someone asked me, um, they were like, Kyle, you've got everyone in this community on board and it's trust. Like when you say something, you do it. And if you speak openly to them, you'll find that they speak openly to you. And the results are exponential after that. Now that that's amazing to hear that. That's really important. Really important. The, the cap, the, I mean, of course, there there are certain, as you know, there are certain capital requirements as companies where we're meant to be bringing to the table. Um, and of course, you know, having more money in a bank account, you know, is obviously far more helpful than having less. But that's actually not what underpins it, uh, as as you said. It's that it's that trust built with a community um, and that plain honesty, which I have found absolutely uncomfortable at times. You know, picking up that 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 phone to make that phone call to 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 highlight a mistake I've made or something which is going wrong in a project. No one ever likes to do it, but it's appreciated. It really is appreciated, and you won't be punished for it um, as long as you do what you say you're going to do. In that sense, you know, doing business in Indonesia is difficult because of the systems. But when it comes to dealing with people, I find that's probably the, the easiest part about doing business there is because the people are, are generally really easy to talk about business. Absolutely. It's, it's, and um, you know, forever a frustration in the business community here. It's the sort of government which gets in the way. Uh, but yeah. you're right. Subject to taking that time, learning a little bit of Bahasa Indonesian, uh, understanding some of those cultural differences, those religious differences. For example, I mean, as you talked about in Lombok, you know, people in Lombok are very different to people in Bali, for example. Uh, you're talking a you know, fast trip by boat, 40, 45 minutes, but you're going to a different culture, a different religion. That's the story of Indonesia. That's the story of Indonesia. And it's forever a mistake I think people also make, fly in, fly out, check into some nice hotel in Mega Kuningen in the middle of Jakarta, have that meeting for one or two days, about a project in some far-flung place, assuming that their experience in Jakarta is the same as across Indonesia, and then leaving a couple of days later. And it just never works. And I think what I find still remarkable about this place is actually how it functions at all. <laughs> it functions badly, <laughs> but how does it function at all? Because you know, you I mean yeah. the difference from, you know, you know, from say Aceh at one end of Indonesia across to Papua at the other. You're talking about people who are physically different, different culture, different religion, different languages by birth, but it all seems to kind of tick over. That awareness is required that every time you go into a different province of Indonesia, every time you go to a different area, there does require that local awareness, which isn't something that we need in Australia. Like we all joke about the differences between someone from Perth, someone from Melbourne, but those differences are pretty marginal. You know, more... I mean, they're more, you know, tweaks in the language, you know, little traits which are a little bit different, but they're not mm. fundamental shifts, not fundamental differences. Uh, but that is the yeah. case in Indonesia, uh, which is something yeah. which people always have to be aware of. Yeah, there's almost, you, know, you go from island to island, there's one distinct cultures, but there's also different dialects and different languages completely. Like in, in Lombok, you've got Sasak. That doesn't sound anything like Bahasa Indonesia Bahasa. at all. Correct. Would you do things differently if you had the chance to do it again? Yeah, I'm always a little bit cautious about people who say I've got no regrets. Um, I often find people who say that they're either wildly delusional or they haven't done anything. <laughs> so yeah, I've yeah I've made plenty of mistakes here. 
I think the, the number one was just underestimating that cultural shift. I underestimated because I, I, I distinctly remember with our partners back in Melbourne doing all sorts of desktop studies. And, you know, from the comfort of, you know, my house in Melbourne with an Excel spreadsheet in front of me, everything looked good. The numbers looked great. And I made certain assumptions, as we all did, um, about the demand for the product. I was reading these incredible statistics coming out of Indonesia about the longevity of people, about the shift to dual income families. So that, therefore that meant that the, that the, the traditional role of the wife couldn't be sustained anymore because she would have to go to work every day. That meant there was a need for seniors care. I mean, all these numbers seem to work so well, uh, until we got here. And I didn't quite realize that there were these cultural barriers. Uh, to yep. see moving products. So in that sense, we were probably about five years too early. What turned things around for us was instead of doing the residential development first, you have something which, you know, listeners will be familiar with the idea of, you know, independent, semi-independent seniors living, which is a thing for what, 20 or 30 years in Australia, but obviously something very new in Indonesia. Instead of doing that first, what we should have done, which is what we're doing now is uh, the seniors clubs. So if I can just for a very quick moment. So the seniors clubs basically operate like this, like school Monday to Friday. Uh, there are three of them operating in, in 2021 under the operated by living well seniors communities. So children or more likely drivers drop off that elderly person on a Monday morning at around you know, Monday, 8am, 9am. Uh, the facilities are beautiful, lakeside, uh, staff greet them. They have a breakfast with us. Uh, then there are all day activities, whether that's arts and crafts, singing, dancing, music, physical education, outdoor exercise. There are all sorts of excursions that we run, that kind of thing. And then at the end of the day, four or 5 p.m., uh, either children or drivers take their parent back home. Now that's been successful. And we, sh in hindsight, we should have done that first. That's not something which happens in Australia or, or other Western countries, that kind of seniors club model. But that was a really good soft introduction to the product. That was a really good way of showing people, hang on, seniors living, seniors products aren't scary. Uh, it's not a case of children discarding their parents. As I said, that in hindsight is what we should have done first. The seniors club as that stepping stone, seniors clubs first, and then the residential project. We started doing the residential project first, stalled, then shifted to seniors club living and now have gone back to the residential living. And that's that's the formula which has worked. You, you said, you know, there was almost like a shame initially for, for people to put their parents into a home. And it goes back, I, I actually, my wife put this clearly. She said, Indonesians have put a value on face. Yes. So they don't give a shit if you're driving a Rolls Royce face is more important, which means that in the eyes of the community, if if you're perceived to be doing the wrong thing, um, that actually means a lot more to them than than driving around in a fancy car. So in, in your particular circumstance now, no, they would be thinking, you know, it looks like we are abandoning our parents. Correct. So it's, it's um, yeah, very interesting that you mentioned that. Correct. So we, and we have to demonstrate that, you I mean, uh, because there was no point of reference, because there's no one who, you know, really done it before. To be fair, uh, you know, you only know what you know. Um, and, and with no template, 
uh, and with no reference point, people did make the association. The, in Bahasa, it's, you know, Bahasa Indonesia, it's called you know, Panti Jompo, which is you know, kind of government-run, uh, where children are out of the scene, lower-income families, perhaps the elderly person is homeless. That was the association. So what we did with the Seniors Club is really worked very hard to make it a premium destination, to get uh, familiarized, familiarized with our brand name, familiarized with the offering, uh, and then when they saw the seniors clubs, how they operated, that it wasn't a case of mum or dad being abandoned, but quite the opposite. It was something which the parents were yearning for uh, and it wasn't a source of shame because of the way we presented, the food, the staff, the way the staff were trained, the way the staff looked. It was something which was much more akin to a hotel experience than in Bahasa Indonesia, Panti Jompo. Uh, so that was all part yeah. of branding exercise. So that then has yeah. made, that created that stepping stone to, to residential living. Now, um, we're going to go back to something you said before um, initially, which is about you know, finding the correct business partner at the start. I made this mistake and lost a lot of money. Um, now, what traits and qualities um, or narrative are you looking for in a business partner? I think we had one, one, one advantage that which I think perhaps a lot of entrants in the market didn't have. Because we were very clear from day one that we understood our target market was a middle upper demographic. So what I should probably very quickly explain that. So very wealthy Indonesians are going to seek out services or medical treatments in Singapore. So they don't kind of need what we offer. Uh, because when we talk about independent seniors living, well, actually, in one sense, Indonesians, wealthy Indonesians have been doing it for decades. You know, you walk down you know, Orchard Road in, in Singapore, uh, so much of Singapore's economy, so much of Singapore's property market is underpinned by, by high wealth Indonesians. So we're not really chasing that very high-end market, the high-end market which can insource nurses, insource all sorts of services, medical support, etc. What we're really after is that middle, middle upper demographic. So dual income families, husband, wife goes to work, children go to school. Big question, who's taking care of mum and dad? Ah, living well seniors communities. So we had one advantage uh, that other perhaps entrants to this market don't have. We understood that that middle upper demographic that we were chasing typically lived in master plan communities. So that therefore meant we were looking for township developers, which narrowed the list. You're talking only you know, five or six significant players in that market. Again, as you know, we talked about before, a very small business community. So because we were chasing... Wow, that, that, that's yeah. incredible. Like, you know, for a population that size. Yeah, so yeah, five or six large-scale uh, township developers who are offering these very nice gated communities with integrated facilities. So, you know, a property developer will typically now be in the uh, medical services uh, sector because I, as a property developer, could offer a fantastic product, but because of traffic considerations in a city like Jakarta, what happens if I get sick? Well, if I'm then stuck in traffic for one hour, therefore then that necessitates me as a property developer suddenly getting into the medical game building a hospital. Uh, same, same for children. Um, okay. I may have a very nice offer, a very nice town, town house or landed home. But if children need to go to school, where do they go? If they're going to be stuck in one hour in traffic every morning and every afternoon, maybe my product's not very desirable. So suddenly I'm now in the 
education business. So that, that's typically been the way this is rolled out. So those large township developers who are property developers at heart 20 or 30 years ago are now all in the medical game, are now all in education services. They even have their own universities because these townships yeah. require these integrated uh, facilities. Uh, internet also, you know, uh, companies like, you know, My Republic are still all owned by property developers. Um, so that's, that's all part of it. I think as we talked about earlier, these very small business communities with, with fingers in, you know, numerous pies. So we yeah. have the advantage. We're actually chasing very few people. So the shortlist was actually very, a very easy process. Um, the other aspect is because of the size of these players, uh, they're all publicly listed. Now, I mean, again, I don't want to be too naive about it. Uh, just because someone is listed on the Indonesian Stock Exchange doesn't mean there'll forever be 100% transparency as to the way a business operates. But it certainly provides a clue. You know, records are reasonably transparent. Um, so we were able to get a pretty good understanding about the companies, what kind of debt they had, uh, what kind of assets they had, what kind of reputation they had, which is a little bit different if we we're just chasing a kind of a disparate guy selling us land. So in that sense, it's been, it's been relatively easy. We're able to shortlist, uh, pretty quickly the kind of people we wanted to do business with. Just to give, um, to give this as a size of the scale though, um, no, how small, what's the smallest sort of proposition in terms of rooms or villas would big, these big companies even look at? So where, where we're developing the moment, Chitra Garden City, that's a township of 70,000 people. So I think they've built there maybe about 25, 26,000 homes within the township. Wow. That's on the small end. If you look at BSD, uh, owned by Sinamas, uh, you're talking maybe over a hundred thousand homes they've developed within this one township. Wow. Again, all of this has been a product of a pretty shitty local government. So if you accept that local government here isn't going to provide a high quality road, high quality water supply, isn't going to provide stable electricity, stable internet, all those kinds of things, you then uh, rely on the private sector. Now, I can give you a very long list of reasons in a public policy sense why that's a bad thing, but that's the reality of big cities yeah. in Indonesia. Yeah. So if you're then that property developer, uh, you need to offer more than simply houses. You need to offer more than simply landed homes and, and, and townhouses and apartments. You need to offer a whole infrastructure. Uh, so as I said, that also means medical care, schools, university, roads, electricity, water, uh, internet. It becomes part of an ecosystem. But the missing link, as I always say to people, the missing part of the jigsaw was uh, any services for seniors. There were no services for seniors within any of these townships. So that's where we stepped in. That's where we were able to, I, I think, successfully be able to say to, to these guys, look, you've got these incredible, very nice, comfortable homes, very nice, comfortable environments of lakes and walking paths. Again, it, again, forever, you know, tale of two cities. You know, you go from one part of Jakarta into one of these master plan communities, it's a very, very different lifestyle. But the thing you were missing out on was services for seniors. Uh, and that's simply something which, you know, no one had. And that's the, the gap I think we've been able to fill. How did you initially structure your business you know, from a legal and a tax perspective? So a P PMA, uh, some listeners may be familiar, some may not. So a PTPMA is a foreign owned entity. So there's the Australian company, which owns 
the majority of the Indonesian company. So as a, as a non-Indonesian, I'm unable to have a local company. So an Indonesian can establish a local PT, like what we would associate with like a proprietary limited, but a non-Indonesian cannot do that. So a non-Indonesian has to set up a thing called a PT PMA, um, which requires foreign investment, requires a foreign entity. So in our instance, an Australian company is the majority owner of the Indonesian PT PMA. So in Indonesia, it's Communitas Hidubayak, PT Communitas Hidubayak, which is primarily owned by Living Well Seniors Communities out of Australia. Probably the most crucial part of your business is the service, you know, the delivery of the service itself. So when you're looking for staff, you know, what, what approach did you take initially for attracting the staff and, and then retaining them um, in, in a skill set that you know, is clearly in a shortage? Yeah. Um, and were there specific job websites or recruiting agencies that you went to to help you a- attract that talent? So if I can answer the last question first. So I guess the Indonesian equivalent, of seek, seek.com. There's two, and they're very good, um, JobsDB and JobStreet, an experience just like with Seek. You know, you pop in your credit card details, you buy a packet, you advertise for a, for a fixed amount of time, applications, you know, arrive in your inbox. So that, 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 that works perfectly well. In terms of the skills, um, so about three or four years ago, we ran into if, uh, difficulties, and I think Indonesia is still wrestling with some of these issues uh, regarding the, the nurses association here, the, the, essentially the nurses union, domestic staff unregulated here in Indonesia, whereas nursing is obviously a highly regulated industry in Australia as it is in, in, in Indonesia. And there was a real push by the uh, nurses association here to ensure that any care being delivered to seniors was being delivered by them. So this may sound a little bit familiar to some of the discussions going on in Australia. Uh, the whole discussion between personal care attendants versus nurses. Uh, ratios, uh, how many nurses should be at an aged care facility? Uh, how many nurses should be taking care of a senior person versus a personal care attendant? I mean, these are all arguments being had in Australia and, and by no means have they been resolved. So Indonesia is now having these same issues. We're going through the same process at the moment. But to a large degree, it's because there wasn't that initial skill set we really tried to look for people from a hospitality background. You know, I, I really believe if, if the hospitality-driven industry here is, I think, very sophisticated. Uh, so we were primarily recruiting from people from a hospitality background uh, because we didn't have a seniors care background to recruit from. It wasn't an industry which previously existed. And yes, there were people who were taking care of seniors, nannies, housemaids, etc but they weren't posting ads on Job Street or JobsDB. I mean, they were you know, essentially under the radar, directly employed by families. So, you know, when you flick through JobsDB, Job Street, there's no category for aged care. So the next best thing for us was to look at hospitality. We would recruit people from the hospitality industry. There are certain things which I'm very particular about. And the number one is smile. You know I mean, old people, just like any other human person, any other human being wants to be engaged, wants to be talking and chatting, socializing with someone who's happy and cheery. Um, and as I always say to the staff, even if you're not happy or cheery, at least if you fake it for eight hours between you know, nine and five <laughs> and maintain that smile, and that for me is the most important thing. 
the feedback actually we always get back from children about how lovely it is to see our staff always smiling. So that's something I've always yeah. been very particular about. We don't have an industry we, we can recruit from because we've kind of created this industry our, ourselves, but primarily F&B, hospitality industry, uh, and then we then train them on the job, particularly to aged care. So we do have nurses, which we employ, who then assist with training our hospitality staff uh, about some do's and don'ts, something which I'm passionate about, dementia care, and then even the basics, how to pick up someone if they've had a fall, how to assist someone if they need to go to the toilet, if they don't feel comfortable or, or, or confident enough, talking to the chefs, uh, what kind of meals should they be, should our members be eating every day? We don't want to create an environment where people are you know, eating porridge and soft food all day long. I mean, it's not, it's not that. It's an experience akin to a four or five star hotel. We bring hospitality staff, we get in some medical staff in the background, and that's always something which I'm very conscious of. The medical staff are in the background. You don't see staff running around with stethoscopes or anything like that. And then they assist in training up those hospitality staff. We'll um we'll leave it there for starting a business in Indonesia. So we'll we'll move to um to part three now, which is building in Indonesia. Um, now your your investment projects are a lot larger um than than in normal investors going to Indonesia and you know building a villa or two. So how does the approach you know change when you're dealing with millions of dollars as opposed to a couple of hundred thousand dollars? Yeah. So the project underway we've got is 142 apartments. I guess there's a build of maybe about, uh, sorry, build an uh, entire development cost of about 16, 17 million US. Um, oh, look, I think it goes back to your earlier point about finding quality contractors. Um, again, at that level, there's only a few companies which you would be comfortable going to. And then being able to establish their track record is very easy. So a couple of things happening. Number one, the responsibility uh, for the physical building works is being underdeveloped by our partner, one of the township developers. So straight away, understanding what their track record is, understanding what their quality of build is, is actually extremely easy. You know, there's a whole portfolio of literally tens of thousands uh, available over their 20 or 30 year history. So that's number one. Number two is they will inevitably subcontract out to, to a builder. That's fine also because, again, that pool of contractors who can pull off that kind of size development is relatively small. And, again, we can easily find out what kind of building works those guys have been involved with before. In that sense, I think because of the scale of it, ironically, the scale of it's actually been an advantage because we can only a few players can do it, only a few players have that kind of track record, and we can easily see what those past projects have looked like. I think... I mean, there is a temptation to, and I understand it, and it's something which I had to be very conscious of at the start, uh, there's a temptation to try to control most aspects of the building works. That's probably not going to work, and that will probably run you foul of all sorts of your own visas in Indonesia, your own company permits in Indonesia. You know, you ca we can't get into the building contractor business, so that's where you have to rely on your partners. Uh, and again, it yeah. goes back to, I guess, the original point of being able to source a partner, that there's some level of transparency, being able to find a partner's past projects that you can refer to, uh, and then it just comes down to trust. Indonesian builders, they're, they're notorious for misquoting. Yep. Um, certainly, 
don't know how to schedule a project. Um, but I guess when, you, when you're talking about you know, companies like this, those aren't such big issues, or are they? Um, when it comes to quotations, do they vary from, from the actuals? I think quotations are fine. We haven't had that experience, again, because of the market size of some of our partners. The contractors aren't going to necessarily take shortcuts with them. But I think finishes, final finishes is something which I'm, uh, I'm almost, you know, is, al- is always something which has to be watched over, particularly given what we are offering a seniors living product. You know, something is simple at one level, but extremely difficult to execute, you know, in bathrooms, uh, getting the tiling right getting those uh, floor levels right. You know, all these things are what you would look for anyway in a good builder, but particularly given we're dealing with seniors who are often prone to have falls, slip in bathrooms, all that really matters. So we aren't so concerned about uh, whether or not quotations will be met because our partners, I think, are of a certain size and a certain muscle in Indonesia and the contractors are of a certain size and legitimacy also, but the final building works is something which I think always has to be watched over. Um, and that's no different in our project to perhaps any other Indonesian project. How do you protect yourself contractually um, w- with your contract? So are there certain things that um, you would want others to know or know that others should be looking for in, in, in a well-written contract? Look, for whether it's a small-scale or large-scale project, um, I understand the temptation, particularly people who've been involved in the property industry in Australia, uh, like I was for, for many years. But there is a, there's a lot of worth in getting a good project manager. And, you know, project managers forever get a bad rap even in Australia. There's often a question mark about why are they needed? Why are they picking up, you know, four, five, six percent clip on the overall building works? It is needed. Uh, particularly in Indonesia. So finding a reputable project manager who will very quickly be able to source a builder who hasn't taken shortcuts in past projects. We don't want to project manage construction works here. We don't think we can give that role justice. So we work with our building partners, with our property developer partners, and they're the ones who appoint project managers internally to watch over the building works. In Indonesia... Now, if a worker gets hurt on site, you're liable to pay for their damages. What's the best approach for this for, for people on the smaller end of the investment scale? Kyle, same answer. Do you mean that direct engagement with a builder should be via the project manager? So that, that yeah. lead responsibility then would be borne by the project manager. So you appoint a project manager, that project manager then directly engages the, the building contractors. So a few things happen. So if there's a, if there's an accident on the work site, it's that project manager. He or she is the contract door. That's number one. Number two, uh, as a foreigner, you do not want to go through the process of obtaining permits. Leave that to a local, i.e. leave that to that project manager. So again, that's why I say, I think for, for if you're doing two or three villas, I think there is a temptation to do it yourself. I, like I, I get it. I understand that, especially if someone been experienced doing building works back in Australia, but there's a lot of worth in uh, directly engaging a project manager. And then that project manager's job is tasked with getting building permits, getting the appropriate right to use permits. Because again, I mean, just like Australia, I mean, areas of, of all land here in Indonesia are zoned, whether they're zoned commercial, residential, industrial, etc. just like AU. 
So not getting sucked into what someone is saying, yeah, you can build this, you can build that, etc. Well, that simply may not be true. So tasking that project manager to confirm with the local government authorities what the building permits are available for that area, tasking that project manager to directly engage contractors. And yes, it may be frustrating at times because that project manager is picking up a clip on everything, but it's mm-hmm. still probably the safest way to go. Now we've seen um, the sentiment towards uh, eco-living change, um, particularly in, in, in Indonesia. Has this changed the way you're approaching your builds now as well? For us, I mean, the bigger issue for us right now is, is dealing with, with, um, with the pandemic um, and bringing in some level of control. So, you know, we, we designed the building a certain way uh, and then now with COVID underway, uh, certain adjustments have to be made. So for us, the, the focus has been creating these open air environments. Um, I think the lessons learned out of uh, North America and Europe with regard to seniors living and this horrific death toll in particularly in colder environments, Spain, Italy, which were really just ravaged by this a few months ago, uh, there seems to be a common theme, and that is they were closed environments, constructions done you know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, which were meant to be airtight because of the cold weather. Uh, but the flip side of that was, of course, creating these environments with this um, recycled air, which, of course, is what allowed the virus to thrive. So the current project underway is, is every every hallway is open air. Now, we couldn't do that in a cold environment, uh, but obviously in a tropical environment is something you can achieve. Uh, it cuts down on the services costs, the monthly services costs, because we're not having to create all these air-conditioned environments, but it also creates a safer space. So I think for us the biggest change hasn't been necessarily the eco-living, but, but responding to uh, COVID-19. But I should add, different areas, different demographics will require different things. You know, if, for example, we were undertaking a development in Bali or Lombok, hypothetically, let's say we were targeting expatriate market, I think we would do things differently than what we're doing in a big city like Jakarta, targeting, for example, an Indonesian Chinese uh, middle upper demographic. That's a very different community. There are certain things which what we are doing in Jakarta to appeal to the local market, which would obviously be very different if we were targeting an expatriate market in a place like Bali or Lombok. Summarising this part of the podcast, which is building in Indonesia, what would you say are that your five tips for building in Indonesia? I don't know if I've got five tips. I can certainly provide five reasons why employing a qualified project manager with a strong track record is important. Let that project manager... Uh, in conjunction with a good notary, uh, you know, the equivalent of a lawyer you know, in Australia, let them undertake the required permits. Let them be the ones to find out, not just hear it from some guy trying to sell land, but let that project manager slash notary find out directly from the local government if your intended use, your intended building works are even possible. Let that project manager be the one responsible for the hiring of contractors And then what that also allows for, A, if you're not happy with the building works, you're not dealing with the plumber, the tiler, the the bricklayer, you're dealing with one guy, that one project manager. That would be my my number one piece of advice. Final part, 
running a premium business. Attention to detail, you mentioned it before, especially the, the finishings and your particular business where you're dealing with an aged population. Those details, you know, like a tile that has a little bit of a lip on it, yeah. could be a trip hazard, for example. That Those things are critical for your business. So how do you instill this culture of pers- perfection and service in your company? There has been an absolute boom here over the last decade of college students. That, I mean, that's been one of the remarkable parts about the transformation of Indonesia. But the downside is the quality standards of some of those universities um, can be pretty haphazard. You, know, you get some fantastic universities and colleges here and you get some pretty lousy ones. Uh, so just, and I think this is probably true of, of, of any employer-employee relationship, but I think it's particularly the case here in Indonesia, relying on someone's CV, relying on someone's resume probably just doesn't cut it. We get resumes from you know, prospective employees every day. It's not until we spend one hour with someone over lunch, typically, that we really begin to understand somebody. I think I personally have spent a lot of time doing that. The interviews aren't had in the normal, traditional way. I, I like to sit down with someone over lunch and just have that conversation. I want to hear about them. I want to hear about their families. I want to hear about their relationships. I just want to see what that level of interaction is like because it's a highly social job. It requires a high level of emotional maturity. It requires a high level of social skills. And someone you know, impressing me with a resume with lots of qualifications, it just isn't going to cut it. Because A, as I think we touched on earlier, there isn't really an industry, there aren't diplomas in aged care, there aren't bachelors of dementia care, none of that exists here in Indonesia. So that's number one. Number two, you could have undergrad and bachelors and masters and all sorts of things with these very long resumes people have here, but they may be from some pretty um, haphazard universities or colleges. It really comes down to spending the time having lunch with someone, understanding what they're trying to get out of the job, is it just something because they have a short-term need for some cash, which you know, we understand all, all people you know, need to be paid for their work, versus is it something which they're genuinely passionate about? And that only comes out in having a conversation with someone for an hour, an hour and a half. So that's what we do. When it comes then time to employing that staff member, which we think demonstrates a high level of emotional maturity, what we really look for is smile, and touch. So what I mean by that is, you know, we talked about smiling earlier on. Now, thankfully, in Indonesia, that's probably a little bit easier to come by than it is in Australia. So that's number one, that smiling, that ability to greet someone, that ability to genuinely be happy to see someone is so important in the business, even if they're faking it for eight hours, even if they're faking it, that's fine with me. That's number one. Number two, sense of touch. We are dealing with older, sensitive members of this community. They are often people who feel loneliness, mild levels of depression are very common. We typically meet people not when they're married, we typically meet people when they're widowed. So the, it's very normal for us to be meeting people via the family. Uh, we're told that the husband or the wife passed away a few years ago. Now my parent is uh, very lonely at home. We're looking for a new start in life. You know, from my perspective, I can come out with the best laid plans, but it will come down to staff. Smiling and touch, that ability just to hold someone's hand, that ability to instinctively hold someone by the waist and assist them, walk them through a doorway. All this is so important. That ability to 
when someone is singing, karaoke, etc., to put an arm around them, hug them when they're feeling down, when they're reminiscing about their past husband or past wife. That, for me, is the most important stuff. Everything else we can teach. You just gave me goosebumps. That's incredible, mate. That's incredible. Everything else is teachable. Yeah, how to pick up someone properly if they fall down, CPR, how to radio in properly for help, identifying different issues, choking hazards, talking to the chefs about the different dietary requirements, all that we can teach. That's kind of the easy bit. The more important and the much more, yeah, the more important part for our business, as I said, is smiling and touch, something which I put far more emphasis on than, than anything else in, in someone's resume. I think as, as leaders of a business, we sometimes tend to, to get lost in the numbers yes. and you know, in, in the nitty gritty stuff. But really, when you think about what we do, we're here to make people happy. And it really is, like I said, touch and a smile that makes all the difference. Absolutely. And I, and I suspect that's something which is universal uh, in the aged care industry. But that's, that's really what we look for um, at the end of the day. And, and today, we've been pretty good. I mean, we've, we've had relatively low staff turnover. We've had a couple of staff who've left who've found the job very difficult because it is a tough job. It is demanding. It requires some very uncomfortable truths and uncomfortable realities as, as all of us getting older. You know, trip, frequent trips to the toilet, et cetera, et cetera. So, but we've only had, I think I had a couple of left us and we've only had to unfortunately get rid of a couple of staff because they just wouldn't fit in. Interestingly, the issue wasn't with the, uh, with the seniors we take care of, but with other staff members. And like all, like all working environments, some staff members get along, some staff members don't get along with each other. But ultimately, as you said, Smile and touch. That's the most important thing. Everything else we can teach. Particularly with your premium business, um, there are a lot of design considerations that we touched on before. But when you're dealing with people who have dementia and uh, Alzheimer's, etc., are there any other sort of design considerations that that you take in, like that you put into your your designs? So there, are, yeah, there there are there are a number of really important things. So uh, I guess why I'm pausing is because I mean nothing is going to. Uh, cure this in the short to medium term but what i think we can do i think what we've done a good job of is what i would say to people is turning down the dial on the effects you know someone who we meet as having maybe mid-range dementia i think we've had a pretty good track record of being able to t- dial down some of the symptoms they're happier the family members are happier so the obvious thing which happens of course with dementia with uh, you know alzheimer's is one form of dementia is loss of orientation, confusion, points of references are mistaken, whether that's a physical space or family members, family members, a son or daughter who's confused with a husband or an uncle, etc. Um, so we do a couple of things. Number one, in terms of building works, we have less reliance on signage and we try to make a little bit more ins- instinctive, instinctive wayfinding. For example, on the different levels, instead of simply having level one, level two, level three and having a big sign, we have different flower arrangements, uh, different color schemes. So someone doesn't have to remember that they're living in unit 1101. Someone simply needs to remember when they hop out of the lift, that's that frangipani tree, which they're very familiar with. They know to turn right. Or someone on you know 2202 sees the big bougainvillea shrub. Ah, yes, that's home. I now turn left. So it's an association more with uh, senses and smells and sights versus trying to interpret numbers or signage. 
Um, so that's that's number one. Number two, a lot of natural light. The relationship between natural light and, and forms of dementia are well established. So we have corridors, as I said, which are open air corridors, which not only are dealing with pandemic control, but also are, are deliberately flooding these the spaces with natural light. So someone clearly can associate dawn, middle of the day, dusk, time for night, uh, nighttime. So we, we, we tweak the building in certain ways. And then of course, within the physical units, the building fit out specifications are different to say a normal unit. We have benches, tapware at different heights. We have PowerPoints at different heights. We have controls on thermostats to avoid the risk of someone burning themselves. So little devices like this, which do add to the building cost, but are designed deliberately to assist people as they age, particularly if they have uh, some level of dementia. Now your um, marketing tools, how do you get the right type of client uh, or investor involved with your business? So in terms of clients, again, we're working with uh, established township developers. So they'll typically have their own client base. So what we're trying to create is these uh, multi-generational families within the one township. So as I said earlier, you'll typically have these township developers who are now also in the education game and they're in the medical services game. So what that means is someone buys a house, a landed home or a, or a townhouse, and then if they require medical care, they will go to the hospital which is owned by that property developer. Uh, their children need to go to school. They will go to the school which is has been developed and operated by that township developer. So these are things I think very unusual uh, compared to Australia. So so too with our, our projects, the seniors are coming from those township developers. So they're coming from an existing market base. So wow. okay. we have fantastic partners who are who integrate the marketing of their property sales, of their promotions of the hospital, a hospital package, you know, a screening package for 2020 X discount, plus we can give you free membership at Living Well Seniors Communities, things like that. Um, as I said earlier, it becomes part of a township ecosystem, uh, mm. which makes it much, much easier than looking for uh, disparate sales. Now, training, we touched on this as well. So training is a key part of your 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 business and, and in getting your staff to a level where they can care for the elderly with respect, love and dignity. Yes. Are there certain schools or institutes that you prefer using in recruitment for the, the more sophisticated tasks? Short answer is we don't have the educational facilities yet for aged care. Um, so aged care... Professionals are typically coming out of the medical services. So, for example, a nurse who specialises in gerontology. I, I, I think I touched on this earlier, and it does actually kind of dovetail to issues which are happening in Australia also. I have big reservations about um, medical professionals leading this industry because it then creates a very clinical outcome. You know, we, we always talk about internally more hospitality, less hospital. There is a need for medical services in our business, which also therefore means we require nurses and backup doctors. That's a given. We're dealing with an elderly sensitive community who gets sick, um, who require extra care than you know, people our age. But the problem is when they lead that sector, when they're the key drivers of it, you get a very clinical outcome. And there have been 
retirement homes set up here previously in Indonesia, which have been set up and then just as quickly fail. And then typically you find out that it was led by a retired doctor whose director is a current doctor and all the managers are all nurses. And of course, you create a hospital style environment very quickly. And I yeah. still always remember being taken on tour for one years ago. And, you know, the doors opened. It looked like a, in retrospect, I found out that the architect was an architect from a hospital who had a hospital background. So straight away, the, the layout, the feeling, the fixtures, the, the, the linoleum flooring, it all very much <laughs> like a hospital. But sure enough, the moment you open the doors, you smelt that disinfectant. It was run by medical care providers. It was what they knew. You know, you open up the doors of our facilities and you, you'll smell lemongrass. It's something, Kyle, you'd be familiar with, you know, F&B, hospitality, luxury villas mm -hmm. here in, in Bali and Lombok. It's driven from a, from a hospitality perspective. So, and then it becomes less scary. And then the moment it becomes less scary, suddenly you have a whole sector. There, we don't have those colleges for non-medical staff. So as I said, we, we, we actively recruit from, from people who can show a strong track record from F&B, hospitality. We love people who have come from uh, hotels, from four and five star hotels, because they will present uh, and act in a certain way. Um, so that's number one, which is a little bit different to medical staff who, again, I don't want to you know, engage in cliches and stereotypes too much, but you know, the, you know, that, that image you've got of like the bossy nurse, uh, telling you is telling you do that because you're the patient and she's the, the nurse. We, that's, I mean, that's the antithesis of what we're trying to create. Uh, we want mm. people to be excited about, you know, coming and seeing our staff every day. But what we have done, and this is one of the reasons why I worked with a couple of the other uh, players here to set up the Association of Seniors Living Indonesia, is eventually, and I think we'll see it within the next two to three years, is an established set of guidelines for staff uh, who want to be in the aged care industry. So we're actually working with a couple of Australian companies also, working with Japanese companies uh, to create that set of guidelines. There will be an institute established where instead of somewhere between, again, much like a personal care attendant back in Australia, they're not simply a domestic staff member. They're not as qualified as a nurse. They're somewhere in between. Uh, and we're going through that process at the moment through the association and in conjunction with the Indonesian government. Now, in closing, for yourself, what do you think Indonesia looks like in 50 years' time? What do you hope it looks like? I think the, the curious thing about Indonesia is that you're going to still have these huge dichotomies. You're going to have this strong, confident nation. Um, you're going to have these glistening skyscrapers. You're going to have all these new tollways and airports and rail links, which are being built at an incredible pace at the moment uh, in the big cities across Indonesia. And you are still going to be able to drive two hours and go into a village. You're still going to be able to uh, leave from some skyscraper apartment, drive two hours and then sit on the floor with an incredible family in Odessa in a village, eating from banana leaf, eating with your hands, and then just as quickly get back to have this you know, incredible five-star experience at this you know, modern uh, restaurant or bar back in a city like Jakarta or Surabaya. It will forever be a country of extremes. Uh, it will ever be forever yeah. a country of, uh, of these kind of contrasts. That's what I think Indonesia will look like. It will get bigger, 
it will establish a place in the world. It's still uh, James Riardi from from Lippo Group, one of the largest business uh, businessmen here, always talks about Indonesia about being the world's largest secret, and I think that's absolutely the case. Two hundred and seventy yep. million people uh, has an economy which is the size of Australia already. It will be the fourth largest economy in the world in the next 20 years. Uh, so that growth will in continue. But there will forever be these discrepancies. There will be these disparities. But you know what? I, I don't think that's such a bad thing either. I think there's something very rewarding about being able to have a city life, but being able to travel two hours and being in a, in a village with a family who you can enjoy some quieter moments in life. Now the final one, Dobbin and mate. Yep. Who do you think would inspire the hospitality industry in Indonesia that I should interview next? Uh, you need to speak to Warren Debney. Warren is an incredible architect from Sydney. He moved in Indonesia in 1996. So, I mean, I could spend a day talking about my challenges and ups and downs here in eight years, but that's nothing compared to a guy who moved here just before Indonesia was totally upended in 1996. <laughs> you had the end of the, the Suharto regime, and then you had the, the Asian financial crisis, which crippled this place. And here he was, yeah. as a, you know, a bright architect coming over and uh, found some tough years. The client base dried up as Indonesia went through some really tough times, and now has established himself as, as the go-to architect. Uh, for so many companies and hotels here in Indonesia. So Warren would be a fantastic addition to this podcast. And I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of being able to work with him on one project and I've learned an incredible amount from him well and truly beyond the project, but just about Indonesia and the business community in general here. Ben, I can't thank you enough for making time for this podcast. It really means a lot to me. And I know this, it means a lot to you as well that people don't lose money when they invest in Indonesia. They can learn from our mistakes and, and share in the story. And there are some incredible stories like yours. Thank you very much for making the time. Kyle, thank you. And can I just say, uh, I know I've said this to you offline also, but, but I, yeah, I do appreciate this kind of a forum because what you're doing is so important. Often, you mean, I've, you know, I've done my stint on the Australian Indonesia Business Council and, and we often talk about some you know, doing business in Indonesia in the abstract. And I hope what you're, I hope well, I can do a little bit, but I also hope with some of the other people in your podcast, well, what does that actually really mean day to day? Because often the business environment here for Australians coming to Indonesia often means some very large companies, which we are not. Uh, you know, we exactly. are a genuine SME, but often you'll hear different business forums about doing business in Indonesia. It will typically be from a guy, maybe coming from a large miner, large bank, and their experience mm -hmm. probably isn't going to speak to the kind of work I do. Um, so mm -hmm. I hope this this forum, this podcast, will 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 help with that. I'd love to have you on again at some stage for for a more robust discussion with other people sure. as well. But we will have to end this here. Fantastic. So thanks once again. Most welcome. Well, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. I personally reply to each review and message myself. Now, for all the show notes and links to information we discussed on the show today, simply head to our website on www.indonesiahospitality.com. We can also find bonus content to help you on your hospitality journey. Now, this podcast is about sharing the amazing stories that make up the Indonesian hospitality industry. Individually, we are incrementally better. Together, we are exponentially better. Until next time, sampai jumpa lagi and season greetings.